Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. Hey guys, what is up? Welcome back, everybody. For us in this weirdly warm October days. This is true. I was really upset about that because like a week or two ago, it was super nice and cool. And I woke up early and did stuff. And then it just got to like 80 during the day. And we have these warm things. But it has been spooky. Like the past two days by me have been super foggy and misty which is nice okay no nothing like this here but i i i heard that you know for all you cold lover people month hmm. from monday on is gonna be cold so we'll see good tis the season tis the spooky season <laughs> have you been watching any of your uh spooky movies yeah yeah we're good now since rosie's old enough to go to sleep and stay asleep mm-hmm. at night we've been back on our you know a horror movie at night nice we we did so we did this stephen king movie called cat's eye okay and i've never seen which that. is it's like a medley of three things uh with a loose connection which is cool okay and then we did this new movie called barbarian which was pretty good i've seen i've seen the the I think some some sort of trailer for it. It was pretty good. There was a little bit of little try hardness okay. with respect to some things, okay. but overall, you know, pretty cool. And then the other one we watched last night was called <gasps> Infinity Pool, which was actually pretty good. And this one I've heard as well. Super experimental. So you haven't done Deep Red yet. That's that's my choice for tonight. That's tonight? Cool. Yeah, that's tonight. Cool, cool. You let me know what you think. And also, you should really look into this um, Guillermo del Toro uh, cabinet on Netflix. If you Oh, yes. I will definitely do that, too. You should definitely do that. I watched, like, the, the third one last two days ago. Like, <laughs> still was feverish. And mm-hmm. it was a weird experience between me... <laughs> having a fever and this and this weird stuff about oh, slash alien stuff all right cool on the list yeah so we are here today despite past fevers to talk about this thing in philosophy referred to as idealism quote unquote yeah which i think is uh is an interesting take let's call it on on reality, right? People are more familiar with the other two possibilities that we have. Usually when it comes to metaphysics, I want to say, right? People are definitely familiar with materialism, um, which is the idea that everything that exists in the world is made out of matter, pretty much. You know, scientifically, that's what we believe and what we think. And most people, I want to say, are, at least most people listening to this, most likely, are familiar with dualism, Right? Just this idea that there are two different substances in the universe. One is material, and the other one is non-material. Mm. And then there is this other side, which is idealism, where instead uh, 
the claim, I think, is in a weird sense that everything is made out of the only thing that exists are mind and ideas, sort of, right? It is interesting. And I think that the weird thing about idealism is that there's a couple different types. Some of them are that. And then some of them kind of aren't about substance. Like, I feel like a lot of the post-Hegel people latch on to this thing in a different way. And I think I'm excited to get through that. But the first thing we should probably clear up is that when the average person hears the word idealism, they think like, oh, good job, man. Look up, right? Like we're just positive thinking, you know, or um, you having the best intentions in mind to get the best thing possible. Like, oh, you're not practical, you're very idealistic. You want utopia or perfect things. And that is not what we mean when we say idealism. Uh, I suppose there's a reason why we have those phrases. It boils down from this other thing we're talking about. Um, but this type of idealism we're talking about is idealism with metaphysics and epistemology. I think a better way of understanding it if you're confused, is ideaism. Yep. Right, I think the L is kind of confusing. So we're not talking about positive outlooks or chasing some Dreams. perfect version of something. Different thing. Different thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah, good clarification because most people, when I ask in class, they, they that's what they think. Or you just said, like, oh, somebody who's an idealist. Well, but the same thing happens with materialism, right? Oh, like she's very materialistic and buys clothes. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but and again, you know that I was thinking the other day. While I I think it's easier for me to understand how we got from materialism the way we intended to the materialistic outlook that somebody might have. I don't know how we got from idealism, the philosoph the, the technical term to this positive outlook thing. I have no idea. Hmm. And I haven't been able to make the connection in my head. Oh, where that could come from? I have no clue. I think the connection has something to do with holding ideas to be the most real thing. Mm. And then, oh, therefore, the idea is what I chase. Yeah, most likely, I guess. Which, you know, it's kind of a loose connection. But so... When we think of idealism, I'm sure me and you, the first thing we think of is is Barclay, right? Yeah, I'm trying. To, I was trying to think also historically. Where do we start with this? And is is it Barclay? Plato. Is do we start with Plato? In a sense, yeah, yeah, definitely, mm. right. Uh, and then we move on all the way down to even the cart. Is the cart? Can we consider the cart? I wouldn't consider him it since he ultimately is a dualist and he has the material stuff in there. So you wouldn't say that rationalism equals idealism somewhat. Re- right, yeah. I would say they do, they do not equal one, one another. But I mean, do you think a good place to start that applies really generally to the historical lowercase m movement, and then we could dig in deeply is this idea that the real thing is ideas. Yeah. 
Like ideas are the most real or the only real thing. And non-ideas are either quote unquote less real or more radically not real at all. That's definitely the way to start. Uh, I think that ultimately that is the, the, the root, we can say, of the entire lowercase movement, right? Mm. Um, and I'm wondering how confusing this is for people already, right? What, what does it mean that the real thing is idea and uh, or the more real one? Well, aren't, aren't ideas like, first of all, what is an idea, right? How, how mm-hmm. do we get there? Is that thing a real thing, or is it just like a a product, a, a byproduct of what of, of our brain, of what we think is reducible against something material? But aside from that, I think it's it's interesting and probably should explore this idea that this idea that ideas are our true reality and and. Partly, probably, is the place to do it because he is a good explanation for this, right? Is when he says that whenever we are perceiving things, whenever we are looking outward, we're n- never in contact with anything but our perception of it, our ideas of things. I think it's a good starting point for for this whole discussion. I agree, and the reason why this is going to be tricky is because most people, without knowing it, have, in general, an empiricist outlook, I think, Mm -hmm. on perception and ideas. And what I mean by that is, if you ask someone what an idea is, or where an idea comes from, they're going to say something like, oh, you have an idea... And the idea is caused by, or based on, or is in some way connected to some external thing. So I look at the house next door, I look at the trees outside that are changing color, and then now I close my eyes and I have the memory of those things. Or I can imagine hypothetical versions of those things. Or I can speculate about what my future encounters with those things will be. And so, for some people, idea automatically implies external world. And this is a very, like, Locke way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who don't know, John Locke, this philosopher, uh, thought that what happens in perception is a conscious thing encounters an object, and the object causes a sensation in the conscious thing so like the feeling of a texture or the the look of a color or the heaviness of something when you put it in your hand and that sensation then allows you to have representations of those sensations later on and Hume says the same thing so it sounds weird I think to people to say oh ideas have to like what do you mean an idea has nothing to do with the world you only have ideas because of your encounter with the world yeah there is this understanding that ideas are the the internal equivalent of words i want to say right it's like a picture it's right. a picture right so they are signs that stand for the things that are outside of us uh 
which again this is this is intuitive for most people this is what they think um, how they think the world works right how, how, how they think cognition works right we see something and we picture it in our head and then we label it right so there's the reality outside then this filter which is in our head where we create the idea and then we say things which are even more uh, further uh, the, from, from, from the thing in itself right um but I guess the point is, could it be otherwise, right? Is it possible that instead, the stuff in our head, assuming that they're in our head, because they might be also somewhere else, right? Uh, the stuff in our head aren't just pictures, aren't just signs from what's outside, but actually are the only thing that exists in a and this is the mild version of it, right? And then there's the extreme version of it, if you want, that these things in our head actually create reality the way it is. Uh, which maybe it is extreme for us, but not that extreme for people nowadays, I want to say. Interesting. So the idea initially sounds very weird, and you're like, oh, that's crazy, but you're noticing that the way people think about things currently seems whether or not they realize it to be kind of idealistic way of thinking right where ideas are most real yeah yeah the i think you you described it right that most people think of ideas like words um because the common pushback is something like well where did the ideas come from and there's two responses to this that go against our usual conception of where ideas come from, which is experiences of the external world. And by external world, by the way, we mean something that exists outside of me. And independent. Like if I died, it would still be there, right? It's independent of, of me. Um, so that's one idea of where ideas come from. There's two other ideas. One is you can take a kind of innatist route. We've discussed this previously on the podcast where you say, well, no, you're born with specific ideas already in you. Um, you know, Socrates and Plato talked about this. Descartes talked about this. Um, in a different, lesser sense, like Chomsky and Pinker yep. talk about this. So that's one option that we can discuss, this idea that ideas are just innate for some reason, um, either from biology or from God. You could talk about that. But the second alternative, weirdly enough, and this is the one that's going to apply to Barclay, is also an empiricist one. Barclay says, yes, your ideas are based on your sensations, but your sensations are not of external things. Yeah, the sensation so, is actually the thing. That's the thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so, in other words, when I'm looking at a tree, or I'm looking at you right now on the screen, not only is there no reason to posit the existence of a tree or a you outside of this experience I'm having, mm -hmm. but it's actually impossible to do that because it implies a contradiction. Yeah, and, uh, and I think it is interesting to note that this is not a form of solipsism, Right. Right. So for Barclay, it's not that we are creating all these things. Those things are there. 
It's like reality is made out of this I this sensation that exists outside of us. And we're just through our senses kind of recording them. And mm. I think that the fascinating things about uh, the, f- the fascinating thing about Barclay is that when you're looking at a tree or when you look at another person, you are the one putting together all the sensations and creating this thing that we call objects, people, trees, and stuff like that. Because in reality, those things do not exist. What exists is the color of things, the texture of things, like the raw sensations that we put together because we used to see them together, right? Mm-hmm. So, and this is a really strange reality uh, from from the from the from our perspective of modern. Uh, people and I love how he is like very confrontational to people that say that this is absurd because in fact he says no you guys are absurd when you talk to me about this thing that's matter Mm. and he's like can you please point to me where is this thing right he is lashing against Locke uh, and saying like what is this material substance like and it makes the example of the cherry right and this cherry Mm. Like, if you take away the the sweetness of it or the tartness of it, the the color red, the specific texture, uh, and all other stuff, right? The smoothness of it, the roundness of it, what is left? And the thing is, like, that you kind of have to admit that nothing is left. And then he says, well, and where is this material substance then? Yeah, because anytime you point to something, mm-hmm. the thing you're pointing to is an experienced thing. Exactly. Right? But he's like, point to me a thing that exists outside of an experience. And you're like, well, I can't because anything I point to is necessarily within my experience. But for some people, they might be like, okay, why not just say we don't know if it's out there, right? Why not just be agnostic? Isn't that the more like logically conservative mm-hmm. uh, and sure position we could take. But he doesn't think so. Because if you ask him what an object is, and this is how he gets you, right? Because he's like, all right, you don't agree with me? Let's. He's like, kind of like Socrates. He gives you these premises that you agree with, yeah. and then he's like, boom, right? This conclusion follows. So he goes, an object is nothing other than this collection of sensations slash idea properties right Mm -hmm. like so you pick the cherry like what is a cherry oh well a cherry is this round thing that's reddish that has this specific size and weight that has this specific flavor and scent and it makes this noise like if you tap on it and it has that juice in it so you just describe a cherry Mm -hmm. right and he goes okay so what I always do in class is I say, so imagine a cherry, but take away all the auditory properties. And everyone's like, all right, that's pretty easy. You don't typically hear cherries, so sure. Yep. And then I go, all right, now think of a cherry and now subtract also the scent. And you say, okay. And I do this one by one, right? Remove the texture of it. Remove the taste of it. Remove the sight of it. And then I go... What's left? They're like, nothing. And I'm like, exactly. 
So an object is merely the totality of some sensations of that object, right? Mm -hmm. So if you accept that premise, Barclay then goes, well, where do sensations and ideas exist? Are they like a thing happening outside of us? And you're like, no, of course not. Like a sensation is something you feel. An idea is something that exists within a mind. And he goes, all right. So you accept that ideas and sensations can only exist in a mind. Yep. And you accept that objects are just collections of sensations and ideas. Yep. Therefore, it would necessarily follow that objects, by definition, cannot exist outside of your mind. Yeah, and then you, Which blows up the whole theory of matter. Yeah, which all of a sudden you feel like you're in trouble and you're trapped, right? And it's they hate it. They hate it. They're like, "What?" But I don't. Yeah, yeah. It's I. Whenever I, I, I tell them all the time, like, "Okay, like try to think of something that you have never perceived." And they're like, "What? Try to think of something that you've never perceived, like the unperceived." He says, "Is unconceivable, right?" And it's the same thing. And the reason why that's the case is because objects, as you said, exist only in your mind, and if you cannot think of it you're gonna perceive of it and vice versa because they are the same thing there's no separation between these two things right mm. they're together and sometimes what people try to get out of it is they say well how about we describe the object in terms of its function or in terms of its role in nature to which we reply all those things you also only know through your sense experience so really he's taking empiricism to, to its logical conclusion yeah because lo so, most people don't have trouble with Locke, um, who kind of gets us halfway there, because for Locke, even though he says matter exists independently mm -hmm. of consciousness, he says some of the properties you experience don't. Exactly. So yes, the size, the weight, the shape, the position, like that's there, but color and smell and taste and texture and sound those things only exist in your mind now some people push back against that because they're like how is that possible and an easy way to kind of prove that one is in if you look at a specific example one is more abstract um the example is to say that well dogs don't see the world in the same color as you mm -hmm. butterflies don't see the world in the same color as you colorblind people don't see the world in the same color with you. So clearly, color can't be an objective property because if it was, like size and weight and stuff, then it, it couldn't vary from person to person. Yep. Or the, the stuff we talk about with taste, where you and me ha think things have different flavors, or the COVID nose gives, makes me smell things yep. in a different way. Now the abstract way is to say, well, color is an interaction between light and your eyes. Mm -hmm. So you need both of those things, right? You need a thing and you need the eyes. If you just had a thing by itself, there's no color. Mm -hmm. If it just had eyes by themselves, you don't have color. So naturally, if you try to imagine an object outside of your eyes, it can't by definition have color. So Locke went halfway. Yep. And now Barclay's saying, you're right. Now we're going to go further yep. and say those primary things like shape and size, 
even those don't exist outside your mind. Yeah, and he makes all these examples that things have no co- no size without color, or you know, and shape is also a byproduct of other things that we perceive as well. To the point that, again, if you accept his premises, you're forced to agree with him. But I'm wondering if this is a and this is a special form of idealism, right? Uh, some people call uh, Barclay's theory rather than idealism like phenomenism, right? Mm. Where he's perceiving, he's talking more about the phenomena, meaning the perception of stuff rather than the ideas uh, proper. Because, and not that it's not interesting or not that it's not, uh, what can we say, pertinent to what we're talking, it is. But as extreme as it might sound to people, this is still kind of not extreme, right? Mm. Uh, because we're still assuming that there is something to be perceived. Yes. Right? Even though it's just sensations. Even though it's just phenomena. But they're still there to be perceived. That's a good point. They're still of something outside of the idea there's kind of you know if you want to say with with the court there's mm. still a res cogitans there right there is still stuff that are made out of this immaterial thing this mind stuff that we can perceive somehow um, no you're right so there's strange people outside of my house in a truck and I'm like what the heck is this <laughs> is this just in my mind speaking of that but you're right, and now that we think of this, it's kind of weird that Barclay says this because he also says an idea can't be anything else like an idea, like a non-idea. But in accepting that an idea is of a sensation, he's kind of like going against that little little side issue. Mm-hmm. But for people who are listening, basically what we're saying is for Barclay. Even though he's getting rid of the mind-independent world and saying everything's in your mind, the ideas are still about something, about sensations. They're still representations, in other words. So maybe phenomenalism is the the more accurate description versus idealism. Well, I mean, we know what the issue is, right? At the end of the day, we're perceiving ideas... And we're still perceiving a mind, pretty much. We're perceiving, like, God's mind when we're perceiving those things out of there, right? The world is God. is made of God's thoughts, right? That's what it is. And that is the weird part. The God thing is strange because it's almost like Barclay's way of saving objective reality. It is. Because some people say, oh, in Barclay, there's no objective reality. Some people call it subjective idealism. But I don't think that's correct. I, I think it's more accurate to say there's like maybe an intersubjective idealism or, weirdly enough, an objective idealism. Because he's saying the world does exist apart from one particular conscious person. We're all partaking within the same world 
It's just that the world isn't a thing existing out of the ideas, like you said. The world is just the ideas of God. Like, it's just the mind of God. So we exist within a larger mind. Yes, and, and to be fair to him, he never said that ideas are to be in human minds in order to exist. He says that they're to be in a mind. True. And the idea is that they are in God's mind, right? And so we do this perception because we are, we also are ideas, right? We also are, uh, yeah. Like we say products of somebody's mind, something's mind, right? Which makes Barclay like even more hated by our students, I think. So when we have ideas, it's like an idea within an idea. <laughs> they are basically words, right? <laughs> it's really interesting, and. People feel the the need to push back, especially against the God part. I think the God part requires um, a little bit more effort logically. But the first part, just the, the bare bones idealism stuff, I always say, listen, if you don't like something, that's fine, right? We're here not only to understand, but to see if it's true and to push back if necessary. But if you're going to do that, you have to come up with a logical argument in response to this thing. Yep. So where does he go wrong? Right? It, it seems to be a valid argument. Yep. Is, you know, is one or more of the premises false? Is it not true that ideas can only exist in a mind? Is yeah. it not true that things are just collections of sensation slash ideas? Like, what, what's going on here? Which, which one is the wrong one? And it's, you know... And again, to me, it's very hard to find a, a wrong premise there, right? Unless, unless we say that, kind of what you said before, right? That for, in order for all these things to work, there needs to be something else in there as well. It's an interaction, right? We need an interaction between stuff. And maybe the conservative way of saying things is that not knowing it is Kant, right? It is that, mm. well true we only perceive things but there must be something out there there could be something out there or Kant says there must be but we can even say we can suspend the judgment there right and be like hey there could be we just don't we're limited to the point that we cannot get it who is the guy I always forget that got really mad at Barclay and he was like asked how do you how do you disprove him and he says, I, I disprove him thusly. And he just kicks a rock. Yeah. Oh, uh, Gaun- oh God. I know the guy. Gaunilia? No, it's not Gaunilia. I don't remember. Regardless, that's how people feel about this. They get so frustrated. And they're like, look, right? Like, I'm pushing into something. I'm kicking rocks. And, like, that doesn't, that doesn't disprove Barkley. He's like, no, of course you are. The weird thing about Barkley is people think that in order to accept it, you have to think like, well, nothing's real. And he's like, no, no, everything's exactly the same. The only difference is instead of saying that stuff is matter that exists outside of you, you say, no, it's just like a thing that exists in a mind. But it's ex- the exact same thing, practically speaking. So you want to hear a funny story about Barkley? Uh, yeah. I think we're, we're talked about this. I. I wrote my uh, master's degree thesis on Barclay, right? I do remember you talking about this briefly. And uh, I was writing my thesis. 
I was actually almost done with it. And my dad wanted to know what I was studying, what was my thesis about. And I'm trying to explain to him a little bit, this and that. And I'm like, Dad, it's okay. Just don't... <laughs> just, just knowing him, I was like, listen, don't, don't even... Don't worry about it. It's like... It's just philosophy stuff. Don't worry. And he goes, no, no, no. Just tell me. Tell me. I'm curious. I want to know. I want to understand this, right? And I'm like, okay. And I explained this old thing that we're saying. Explained that truly the table that was in front of us was not made of matter, but it was, you know, an idea, this and that. I make all these examples. And my dad looks at me and is like, what? Like, listen, this is not matter. This is obviously just, it's, I'm being Barkley there, right? So and I get him to, you know, through some things that are similar to what you said before, I get him to kind of, and the point that if he still says that the, that the table is matter, he's going to contradict himself. <laughs> he gets up his stuff and it's like, what if I get this table and I crush it on your head and we figure out if this is actually matter or not. And I was like, okay, this is why I didn't want to tell you that. That's, that is very funny. And that's, people tend to feel backed into a corner sometimes with logical arguments. Yeah. Because you almost feel like, um, like a, like a helpless animal. <laughs> You're like, what, what do I do? I feel like I'm being attacked right now. Yeah, it's uh, and I, I can understand that because it's like okay, it's like my mind is telling me that the right proceedings are this, and my mind is telling me that the right conclusion is this. But the evidence that I have in front of my eyes, like what I've experienced all my life, says otherwise. And now you have this short circuit between these two things, and it's so hard to to decide, right? It's kind of Parmenides as well, right? Like, hey, the 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 turtle never never passes Achilles, hmm. and, and some other part, the, the logical paradoxes, right? We yeah, the the, Z, the Zeno stuff. Zeno. Yeah. I always I always say the wrong name. No, wait, which one is it? It's Zeno. Zeno. Zeno is the Scientologist thing. Correct. Okay, so it's not Zeno. It's it's Zeno. <laughs> So, yeah, it sounds weird. And the contradiction, by the way, mm-hmm. to make it even more explicit, is Barkley is like, all right, tell me something about mind-independent objects. And you go, okay, well, I can think of that. A mind-independent object is, and he goes, no, no, stop. You've already contradicted yourself because you can't think of a thing that is supposed to, by definition, be outside of thought, right? You, you've already failed the task. So not only can you not interact with these things, but even trying to conceive of it makes you wrong. Yeah, because unless you're assuming that something that's not mental could get into your head, right? the moment you think about it, you're already contradicting yourself. Yep, so, he's a frustrating guy. Let me let me get, let me ask a question though, because uh, you know we're talking about God in, in the case of Barclay, and without getting into Barclay's thing, I was thinking, are religions, and especially Christianity and monotheistic religions, maybe in general, are they idealistic in nature? Hmm. Or is that different? 
Well, they certainly believe that the world, the thing we call the world, is a product of God. But this is fake, though, right? This is not the real thing. It's this is certainly, just a test. It's, a, it's less real, that's for sure. It's, mm-hmm. This is like, and this is even Plato, um, this is a painting that God made of a still life he's experiencing or like of a model he has. We're just like, <laughs> paint me like one of your girls, Jack, whatever, like in uh, the Titanic. <laughs> that's, that's us. We're the painting. We're not the girl. Mm-hmm. So that aspect has to be the case. I think the real issue is whether or not the monotheistic religions would say the thing we are, the model we're based, sorry, the thing based on the model that we are, is that an idea? Or is it something else than an idea? And I know Plato says it's not an idea. Hmm. Right? Plato explicitly says God's idea made the material, sensible realm. And ideas get us closer to what God had in mind, right? In that whole realm of forms. But it, but there is a distinction. I don't know, though. I don't know, though. Is, is God itself an idea for Christian religions? Certainly non-material. That's what I'm saying, right? If God is an idea, it would have to be an idea not in the sense of something that we think merely, because that would make God nothing more than a creation of our minds it would have to be some idea that's greater than the thing we think of when we have ideas and think of the concept of ideas Um, it would have to be something like a a mind itself that's greater than our mind I don't know I think this is is an interesting avenue to explore because I'm thinking so first I was like Maybe God is not an idea, right? But God is a mind. But that doesn't work either. Somehow. Because I feel... I don't know. It's a mind that thinks of itself. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to to get there. And how do we know it if it's just a mind? It needs to be also an idea... So either it has to be idealistic or it has to involve non-material God either not being an idea but still being something non-material or being an idea of a scope greater than we can imagine, perhaps idea itself or mind itself, and then being able to create something totally ontologically distinct. That is logically tricky. It is. Right? How can something create something not its... And this is almost like the problem of evil, right? How can mind create non-mind? Mm-hmm. Now, I suppose one answer you'll get is because, well, God's able to do that because it's God. Mm-hmm. But if that's the case, we're forced to admit that there's something to logic that also exceeds the scope of what we can know, and then we can't really have a conversation. So at best, we have to be agnostic. And just have faith, right? And I'm and I'm thinking, right? If God is, and I think that the, where I want to go with this is like, 
so if God is assuming that God is an idea for some reason, right? And of course, God being the ultimate reality, right? The ultimate being. But if that is an idea, does that mean if God is an idea, he cannot be taught by something else, right? Because mind seems to be the thing that produces ideas, right? But if we're right. starting things with ideas, does that mean that there can be there some mind-independent ideas? And ultimately, that's, I guess, the question for us. Are there such things as mind-independent ideas? <laughs> I mean, I'm inclined to say that sounds contradictory to me. Um, it's almost like Descartes is saying, you, you know, you can prove that my thinking exists by doubting, right? Because in order to doubt, you need doubt is a mode of thought, so mm -hmm. it can't exist without thought. I feel the same with ideas. I think, I think maybe the the more logically tight thing to say is not that God is an idea or even idea itself, but that God is mind itself. Empty. Well, we would have to be in it or it couldn't be empty. It couldn't be empty because either we're in it or a result of it. But if it's mind itself, you could say like, oh, maybe we're ideas of God, like Barclay says, or we're minds within a mind, and we're, we're basically like modes of the, the larger mind in the same way that okay. doubt is a mode of thinking. But you would say that, okay, hold on. Is it possible to have minds without ideas? Because mm. is it possible to think that minds are in producing or receiving ideas? Could it, in that model, you're asking about could it have sensations or you're asking about like it has nothing? Like empty. Can a mind be empty? Even for a split second, whatever you want, but can a mind be empty? I think on an epistemological level it can't meaning we could never know that and it could never know anything right because in order to know you'd have to have those sensations and ideas but on like an ontological level can a mind if we're going kind of Brentano Husserl and like more contemporary philosophy of mind they would say no Right, because consciousness has to be consciousness of something. Intentionality is built in, right? It has to be a built-in feature. Consciousness is like an arrow. Mm -hmm. So to say consciousness without an arrow is like to say it, like a triangle without three sides. It doesn't make any sense. But but wait there, right? Is is mind and conscious and consciousness like uh, are these two words for the same thing, though? Because if they are, sure, of course. But if they're not, 
then it's possible to think of a mind that does not develop consciousness yet, for example, right? Is there a stage in being, and now we're becoming like worse than Heidegger here, is there a stage in being mm. where the mind is empty and it's that God, if we want? Like pure potentiality? Sort of. That would go against uh, at least the Christian philosophy because Aquinas... It's pure actuality, actually. God. Yes, exactly. Basing it on Aristotle, it's the only actuality. Or it's the only... It's the most actual actuality, let's say. It's the only necessary being. Um, so God has hmm. no potential. Well, actualities have, the, according to him, <laughs> have the potentiality to turn other potentialities into actualities. But I, don't, it's, but it, I guess, like, and, and my issue is not, so um, I'm not trying to figure the, the, the nature of God here, right? It's like we have assumed since the beginning, and rightly so, I think, we have assumed since the beginning that these two things, minds and ideas, are kind of codependent, we can say, mm -hmm. right? Uh, one needs to be there for the other to be there. And I was trying to figure out if it's possible to separate them, right? Is it possible to have minds that exist empty, without any ideas? Or is it possible to have ideas that are not mind-dependent? So... But it's, and I'm thinking, like, what about, like, panpsychism, right? Is that, like, a, a feature where, like, would that be a situation where there are ideas that are mind independent, or where everything is? Um... Oh, okay, yeah. So, for those of you guys listening, panpsychism is the idea that everything has consciousness in it, and to some degree, right? Like everything. Mm -hmm. I don't know if is conscious is the correct thing, but I'll say has consciousness in it, maybe. Um, and then, which I've brought up before, the related pan-protopsychism, which everything has the ingredients of consciousness within it. It has to. Is that, if panpsychism, in order for panpsychism to be true, do we have to accept the premise that there can be consciousness of nothing, like blank consciousness in things? Which would allow you to say, like, not only that plants are conscious, but of nothing, which might be controversial to say, but, like, a rooftop or the street mm -hmm. is, is conscious, but conscious of nothing. I don't know. This is kind of why I think panpsychism is weird. And I think panpsychism pan is the more likely one, where everything has the ingredients of consciousness but is not consciousness itself because okay. that allows you to get something close to what you're saying but it's, it's still assuming that mind and consciousness are the same thing though right I suppose if you're not going with that you'd have to go to say something like soul okay but soul is different than noose right because we think of soul we th I think of two words I think of anima sure and I think of suke. Yes. I think of those two. Yes. And both of those are distinct from noose. 
Yes. So how does noose get used in the pre-Socratics? Like an examina- ex- I can never say his name correctly. Anaximander. Anaximander. Anaximander? Yeah, it, it, I hate the way it sounds, but I think we'd have to think about that. You're not thinking of Anaxagoras, right? I don't think so. Like the guy where, the pluralist guy? No. You're thinking of the second philosopher, the one after Thales? Yes. Okay. Am I, am I confusing them, though? I think so. Okay. Because the noose guy is the guy that the, the different elements, and then there's the noose that organizes them. So an exagoras the is the noose an exagoras, one. Yes. Okay. That's the noose guy. Yeah. So what did he say about noose? That it was just the animating principle of everything, the it's, structural. It's kind of the intelligent design, right? So it's, it's like, like Plato a, a little bit. Yeah. It's kind. There's kind of an intelligent design that puts these things together. So can you have blank intelligence? Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's so tricky, right? Because I, it's on sometimes sometimes I, I like to, you know, when I think about these things, it's like, okay, maybe the mind is just the architecture part of it, right? There's this thing, and then inside the mind, mm. there's consciousness, there is all sorts of things that can be in there. Where when we talk about mind, we're just talking about the ability to develop these things so mind is a blank potentiality it's like a it's a it's like a mad libs it's a bunch of blanks that could be filled by things according to this certain structure it is uh, maybe it's just like a a a good analogy would be the the uh the tabula rasa right the blank slate right it's just clay It's, it's just clay and then there's the elements that you can write in there, right? There's the things that you can start writing in there. Like a, 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 an unborn baby, I would assume that he has a mind. I don't know if he has consciousness yet. Gotcha. So it's like clay with innate structures. That, that's what it would be. Yeah, something like that. Well, this is now reminding me of something that is going to push us into a, a totally different type of idealism maybe the next episode which is Hegel talks about like these ideas of um, indeterminate being at first is deter- this is like a being that's like full of something versus a being that is not and when I say a being I don't mean a thing I mean like a, a capital B being that is like empty or of nothing. That's um, exactly where I was going. So if you think this is wacky, <laughs> just wait till next Get time. Get ready. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you later then. See ya. Mm-hmm.